From WBFO and Buffalo Toronto Public Media, this is Buffalo What's Next, Producer Picks, highlights of important interviews from our weekday discussion on race, education, and segregation. On today's program, Melody Baker from Just Equations on communication. You know, children at a very young age, they end up having to learn how to code switch. There's nothing more comfortable to me than being in a uh, my own environment and using double negatives. Mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. that. <laughs> Antoine Johnson is here from the Buffalo Prenatal Perinatal Network Fatherhood Program. Author Desiree Williams wrote Beautiful Brown Babies for her son, Cortland. He will be here, too. And Buffalo Schools Associate Superintendent Fatima Morel on the Emancipation Curriculum. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. Thank you for being with us. Up first, Thomas O'Neill White with Melody Baker. She's from Just Equations and talks about inequal education. There are specific areas of education that has been inaccessible, uh, and particularly mathematics. People have no idea how math in and of itself from um, from pre-K all the way to college has been stereotypically geared toward a specific group, white males um, traditionally, and of course, um, we look stereotypically at Asians as being, you know, really good in math. And just the idea and how we stereotype people, um, it makes young black girls think that, oh, I'm not that good in math. And it's just something that is inherent. It's a biological uh, thing that we just don't, you know, think in terms of numbers. We're more creative and, you know, we're we're more into language and, and not necessarily into math, but, you know, that one ideology is why we have um, an overwhelming number of black women not pursuing STEM fields because we know that math in particular is the um, is the pipeline into STEM and STEM fields on average are going to um, offer 10 to 17 percent higher income than any other population. As a matter of fact, um, about a few years ago in 2018, um, the U.S. Department of Labor, they came out with a statistic about uh, STEM degrees, and or not STEM degrees, STEM jobs. In 10 years or by 2029, STEM jobs are going to double in growth compared to all other industries. And that's health, education, all of these other industries because STEM is our key to being able to um, keep up with an advanced global society, compete economically, um, compete with in the digital world. In a time where there's a data revolution, we need people who are able to deal with large, massive amounts of data and effectively in order to uh, advance us as a society. So how do we get, how do we break down that barrier mm-hmm. and get more African-American youth into these fields, into these STEM fields? Where does that start? One of the barriers is definitely breaking down structural structural barriers. Um, we need to broaden math pathways. So most people are familiar with the algebra to calculus pipeline. So typically in the seventh grade, eighth grade, depending on whether or not your teacher places you on the accelerated path, that determines whether or not you're able to make it into calculus by your senior year of high school. Did you like? Did you did you do like accelerated math? And what was your math trajectory? <laughs> uh, math mm-hmm. was not my strong strong suit. 
it's so interesting because when I compare, and so I'm finishing up my PhD in quantitative methods. When I compare the subject of math to like other subjects like English language arts or history, math is the most black and white. You know, people look at math and define it by being tethered to logic and reason. Uh, math is sequential in nature. So it's essentially like following a recipe per se. You know, it's a formula. You know, first you put in the eggs and then after the eggs you put in the water and then you put in the oil. And if you can follow that formula, you can bake a cake essentially. However, somewhere along the line, we have not adequately provided, you know, enough education and foundation in order for students to be able to follow these formulas and do well in math. Your story is something that I've heard specifically disproportionately among black uh, students. I'm not good in math. You know, I've never been good in math. But the students who have those stronger foundations with um, strong teachers that not just teach students, you know, in very important um, facility in the use of math in order for them to be successful, but the teachers who say, I think you're good at this. You know, you did a really good job at that. Math is that one subject that it's kind of black and white as opposed to like, you know, I write a lot. So in terms of writing, um, when I write, I have to write something that's going to be entertaining. It, it needs to be engaging. It has to be at a certain level where, you know, general audiences can understand it. And at the same time, it has to have a level of expertise to it. You know, my grammar needs to be okay. So I would look at something like writing, you know, it's subjective. Mm -hmm. I could think I produced a fantastic piece. You look at it and you say, I don't like it at all. You know, so writing is not like mathematics in the sense that math, the answer is either wrong or right. Yes. And it would also be something for a population who has been most discriminated against, something that they would be most attracted to. How do you look at a page? How do you, how does two plus two never equal four? Whereas, you know, if you're writing and you have a, a, a and you talk in an African-American standard dialect and you write the way that you talk, you know, someone who is used to a traditional European or English standard dialect, they'll say that this is, you know, I, this is grammatically incorrect, or this doesn't make sense, or this isn't something that I'm culturally, you know, able to understand. Whereas math is black and white, so you think it would be something that more black students who have experienced discrimination would be, um, would be, you know, attracted to. But because of our society and things that have been ingrained into us, um, black students are often, you know, not necessarily recommended for these accelerated paths that then take them to calculus, that then take them to um, uh, STEM careers. But to answer your question in terms of what can we do, we can broaden math pathways. And uh, there's a new math that's called data science. And across the country, California being one of the states, California, Virginia, many states are starting to implement data science because uh, it is the, it's a modern math. It is not uh, a math that you know we learned back in the 50s in order to build rocket ships. It takes big data and it helps people to really understand it in a way to improve the human experience. And if black people, black students, can have access to that math, especially in high school, it could potentially expose them to careers that they would not normally be interested in, like programming, um, data scientists, becoming data scientists, um, so many different careers that will lead them into lucrative, um, into lucrative opportunities. 
Talk to me about the importance of having a black teacher. Oh my God, having a black teacher is probably one of the most impactful things that can happen to any student. Uh, just the research in and of itself says that if a student has a teacher that matches their race, they're in STEM four times more likely to um, complete a major in STEM and go on and do well. There's a huge uh, gap in STEM careers and STEM majors among black people, but we've been able to demonstrate one black teacher can essentially turn that trajectory around. What black teachers offer is this indirect mentor or model per se that most white people have and they don't even realize it. You know, uh, a white male sitting in the classroom, the majority of the scientists and the people he sees on TV or in these um, tech, you know, savvy careers, they're, they're white. So he has this mentor that he sees that is, you know, indirectly influencing who he is and who he's going to become. A black person, not so much. You know, we have all of these black students who, or these black kids, if you ask the average black kid, male that is, what is he going to do? He's going to, you know, maybe play basketball or maybe play football or maybe become an entertainer. That's because those are who their models are. That's all they see. That's all they see. So if they don't have, um, uh, non-official mentors in these spaces that they're seeing that they can identify with it's very difficult for you to be able to see yourself in that path in addition to that um, black teachers they have an advantage they have they talk similarly you know children at a very young age they end up having to learn how to code switch and know not to use the same language that they use in their home to this day there's nothing more comfortable to me than being in a uh, my own environment and using double negatives. Mm -hmm. I love mm -hmm. that. <laughs> 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 and just being able to do that without anyone assuming that I have a lower education um, and just feel comfortable with that. But being able to get into an environment using, a, a, like I said, like a double negative, and the teacher still believes that you're competent because he or she uses double negatives. Melody Baker is the National Policy Director of Just Equations. She was speaking with Thomas O'Neill White. Dave Debo is here now with Antoine Johnson from the Fatherhood Program at the Buffalo Prenatal and Perinatal Network. I was thinking about the experience that my wife and I had when we had our second child, our son. And so when my wife, she went into preterm labor and it was, it was scary for her and me at the time. And when we were in, you know, the, I don't, I don't know what the room is called, but as they were prepping her, yeah. she, she kind of felt rushed and like some of the nurses and our doctors are talking over her head. But there was one African-American nurse in there that was really kind of paying attention to her. Like, did, did you understand what they just asked you and those kind of things? And she really appreciated that her and I talked a little bit about it. But I, I was grateful that, that mm -hmm. she did ask my wife questions to clarify things and help her to understand because it was an overwhelming situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, probably a lot more for her than me, but... Yeah, I mean, so you, you think about, like, doulas and, you know, some of the things you talked about around maternal um, uh, deaths and so forth. I mean, that I think just the advocacy part, having nurses that care and can explain things to the patients is super important. Mm -hmm. What of the difficulties that fathers specifically face, though, 
Is, is that something beyond some of the health stuff that Luann has already talked about? Somewhat. I mean, some of it is very similar. So one of the things that I learned over the last year or so is that one out of every 10 men will experience post uh, partum, depression. partum depression. Seriously, I'd never heard that. Which mm-hmm. is not something Yeah, that, you think of it as a, a woman thing. You mm-hmm. think of it as a woman thing, not not something that a lot of men will probably even admit if they do have it. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was really something for me to learn. But I think a lot of the things that, you know, we talk about uh, men in, in, in this space of infant and maternal health they're, they're kind of like the invisible parent or person when we when we have these discussions. One of the things that I also learned was that one out of every four children will grow up in a home without their biological father in the United States, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, mothers are more twice as more likely to experience um, infant mortality. Right, the, their rates go up, the dropout rates go up. Uh, women are seven times, or teenage women are seven times more likely to have uh, teenage pregnancies, and, and the list goes on. And so I think just about everything that we're talking about intersects with men and fatherhood. Mm-hmm. Is your goal then to help existing fathers stay with the family? Absolutely, that's a part of it. Yeah, okay. so, so well, just a part, though. Tell me more. Yeah, so. Our very first cohort, I'll never forget, we had the youngest person in the group was about 18. They weren't even a father yet. They were just playing like a father figure role to nephews. And the oldest was in like mid-60s. And so he was kind of starting all over again. And so we just looked at this intergenerational group and the different dynamics in terms of life stages and, and priorities and all sorts of things. And it, w- it was really interesting. And I mean, the, the needs vary too. So, I mean, the, this topic around fatherhood and, you know, kind of understanding what's important is, is really vague. What do you do? Take me through that kind of talk. Um, do you just pull fathers in individually just like Luann has uh, people working individually on some of the health issues do you pull people in individually and and talk to them about whatever's going on in their life sometimes we we do provide individual uh, services and we try to meet dads where they are on an individual level but a lot of the work that we do is group based okay and so we we do these cohort models seasonally so fall winter and spring and we take dads through a course known as nurturing fathers and so it's traditionally a 13-week group where we talk about everything from what our relationships were like with our fathers which is huge uh, because a lot of us didn't have fathers in our lives which is why we see some of the rates we see when when men are not involved in the lives of their children because for a lot of men or fathers it's hard to be what you never saw yeah. right and so we talk to them you about you can't that. model behavior that you don't know exactly and so one of the things with the nurturing fathers curriculum which is evidence-based is that it it te- it it teaches men how to unlearn some of those negative behaviors, right? So they grew up in abusive homes or whatever, right? They teach, it walks them through how to like, kind of unlearn some of that stuff, even though a lot of it is very traumatic. Uh, but then also how to t- learn new parenting practices that will aid them in their experiences as fathers. And so we talk about things related to co-parenting. Uh, what's the difference of fathering a, a boy versus a girl uh, and everything in between? I'm trying to thread the needle here between stereotyping and uh, and putting the problem through a racial equity lens. Mm-hmm. What's the makeup of your group? 
Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> so, so because more often than not, when people think about fatherhood programs, they think yeah. about programming for black men who are not involved in the lives of their children, and that is not true. So one of the other things that I found interesting when I first started at Buffalo Prenatal was that the CDC did a study between 2006 and 2010. One of the things that they found out was that black men are actually more involved than some of the other races of ethnicities when it comes to direct care. So we're talking about things like bathing and feeding, taking their kids to school and doing, you know, just the day-to-day kind Bing. of things. Yeah. You, you, I would have never guessed that uh, because of the narrative that is put yeah, out there. Yeah. Right? So the makeup of her our groups to answer your question it, it varies so it's it's almost half and half in terms of african-american and white fathers and we have asian and hispanic and different fathers from time to time but i would say both white and black fathers in the community are predominant i want to go back to that stat you had earlier though the one in four mm-hmm. is that specific to african-american men no uh, oh that's in general men okay. in general yeah all right mm-hmm. and that's kind of the thing you have to target and deal with Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Antoine Johnson speaking with WBFO's Dave Debo. This is Buffalo What's Next, Producer Picks, weekly highlights from our recent interviews on WBFO. Our featured interview today is with Fatima Morel, recently picked as one of Time Magazine's National Innovators in Education. She's the Buffalo Public Schools Associate Superintendent of Culturally and Linguistically Responsive Initiatives. When we talk about unpacking white supremacy, we know that um, that's a, a, a scary topic for a lot of people. Like, what does that mean? But until this racist massacre that a ha- that happened uh, on May for May fourteenth. Many people didn't even understand that there are networks of white supremacist groups that are uh, engaging with our young people online. They are enticing them. Um, They are giving them false bravado and attempting them to do things that are horrendous in the name of whiteness and in the name of uh, replacement theory, for example, that, um, you know, blacks and Jews and Latinx peoples will replace us uh, if we don't, you know, exterminate them. I mean, it's horrible. And these networks and these groups, um, they're large and wide, but a lot of us don't want to talk about uh, those groups because they are very also intimidating and they're scary, right? But they are getting our kids uh, on on the networks on the internet through uh, different kinds of technological means and if they find students who may be vulnerable who may be feeling left out and left alone or not appreciated by family uh, young people they they will uh, bring them in and actually uh, um, you know make them you know uh, grow grow groom them to be uh, these here uh, lone wolves that'll go and do something horrendous, but uh, on a more subtle uh, scale, when we talk about racism, um, extreme racism that leads to uh, white supremacist notions of superiority, um, it's those uh, subliminal 
kinds of uh, things that we see and that our kids are, you know, picking up on. Um, for example, when we, uh, you know, we never have a, you know, a black or brown uh, valedictorian, for example, in our schools, or uh, we never talk about the history and culture, the hard truths of history and culture of of, of people of color. Um, it's sort of, you know, it's kind of marginalized uh, in our textbooks or even in our pedagogy. And so those kinds of inklings of racism or the subliminal messages that are sent that, you know, certain groups of people or certain cultures are not valued, are not important, lead to larger and more uh, systemic types of uh, racism and um, racialized thinking that leads our kids to go out there and explore for themselves uh, what, you know, what they think they should know about people that who don't look like them. And that's when we get into dangerous territories of white supremacy. And, and of course, you know, everything that goes along with that. Let's move into just a little bit then about the curriculum that uh, you have and your team have worked on developing in the Buffalo Public Schools. And, and I love one of the quotes that I saw here from you. And it, it, it talks about students weren't getting information about who they are, their greatness, their greatness. Yes. Um, With the emancipation curriculum, it really is a liberating curriculum. And so you may ask me, well, liberating from what? Um, really unlocking the cognitive abilities of our kids, unlocking true history for them so that they can think freely and think for themselves and make decisions about life in the world for themselves. But first, they have to be given accurate information. We can't partially educate our children and then ask them to make informed decisions about who they are or to advocate for their own justice and their own liberation if they don't even know that there's a struggle going on and where does that struggle begin so when we talk about the emancipation curriculum we want to start from the origins of america and as hard as that truth is uh we have to unpack that so that they can see that through all of the trials the triumphs the jim crow segregation the lynchings the mobs the riots the massacres we still stand as a strong people and we still stand as a people who have contributed infinitely to American history, society, and to the world. Our first mathematical geniuses, Imhotep, right? Our first, where does math originate? Why don't kids know that? If they know, hey, genetically I'm prone to doing math because actually the people of Kemet, my people, created math. <laughs> and created science. So I should be able to do very well at that. But when kids don't understand their own greatness or their lineage of historical and intellectual brilliance, they can't connect to that. And then they're not, you know, and that, that makes them, um, you know, not know who they are. And then they can't academically achieve the way that they would achieve if they are exposed to who they truly are as a people. And that's all children. And we do this wonderfully for white children. They're included in all the books, the stories, the histories are there. They feel good about themselves. They can see themselves mirrored in that curriculum. And that's wonderful. But what we have to do is we have to do that same thing for our um children of color, historically marginalized communities of color. And we know right now that the research shows us that we, in Americans' books and textbooks, we show animals are represented twice as much as black people 
in textbooks and American and children's books and 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 um and tax and so even um our indigenous people are only represented by one percent our latinx people are only represented by about five or six percent but then you have animals represented uh, at 27 percent black people represented at 10 percent so it's our job to make sure that our students can see themselves in that curriculum have literature where they are the protagonists of the story and they're doing great things and they're they're they and they're loving themselves like love who you are because there are so many signals and misinformation that sends a message that you're not great that you're not as good as that you are less than so it's really important for us as educators to show no we're all part of the human fabric we all have something great to contribute and to offer and that's part of my role and that's part of the emancipation curriculum to ensure that kids can see themselves wonderfully as they are, all children in the curriculum. And what are kids in the district reading or what are they learning that they weren't five to ten years ago? Well, one of the big things that we did implement um, that was, uh, I think, really uh, changing uh, a big changer game changer for us was the uh, 1619 Project. Um, because not only did kids not know the origins of 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 uh, the legacy of enslavement, but a lot of us adults also did not know. So mm-hmm. we had to. So in order to best train our children, we must first understand who they are, not just present day, but also historically, and also where they're going in the future. Because if we have low expectations, they will achieve low if you set that bar low. So what our young people, what we what we wanted to do is show them, right? Because we talk about the Mayflower flower. But no one ever talks about the white lion. Who was on the white lion? Some 20 odd, right? When you read that in the, the, the 1619 Project, some 20 odd black people who settled at Port Comfort, Virginia, right? In 1619. And then someone decided chattel slavery will begin. But those 20 some odd uh, Africans who, who came here and their descendants it was never a complacent place for them to be enslaved. There was a struggle from the beginning. There were uprisings, right? So we need to let our kids know we, we were never happy enslaved people. We were just outgunned, outmanned. And of course, we, we, just, we just did not know how to hate people. Uh, that's my personal opinion. Like, I think it's hard. It was, and, and if I may, hasn't that been on, on display in the East Side community since May 14th? Just what you said there yes. uh, about hate. It, we're, I mean, I'm not seeing that at all. No, no one in our community and the black community, even after this white massacre attack on our community, even after you've never heard. I haven't heard a single person of color or even a white person say, I'm angry at white people. Um, I don't, I blame the entire white race for this. It's never happened because it's not true and it's not who we are. And this was a young man who was terribly misguided by white supremacist groups who wrote a 180-page manifesto based upon the guidance he received from the wrong place. So when I talk about we have to educate all our children, especially our white children. 
That's what I'm talking about. So that they don't go out there on the websites and try and educate themselves about black people from, uh, you know, the Proud Boys or, you know, uh, this other group uh, that I can't remember right now. That's a New York state based group. Right. So uh, we have to take hold of our all of our children so that they are not educated that way. But. So we empowered our children through the 1619 Project and other curriculum efforts to know who they are, know there was always a struggle and never complacent, never happy, docile working slaves as we are portrayed in so many books. But we're always fighting and always contributing, right? So everything that almost every institution that you see in America has been touched by the hands of African-Americans. When I took about 90 kids to the Capitol building two years before the January 6th, uh, the January 6th, uh, racist attack on our country um i the the children saw the bust of rosa parks and they saw the bust of they saw frederick Douglass and things like that and then um i told them i said you've been to the white house you've been to the capitol building look look at these places and they said yeah they're beautiful they're absolutely wonderful and i said you know whose hands toiled to build these edifices? And they said, who? I said, black people, your people, your ancestors. And they were, oh my God, for real? You know, and then I took them to a little site where they showed the bricks, a little side part they have over in the Capitol building where they have the bricks and they show, you know, the enslaved, they give the contribution to the slave Africa. I said, hey, we have a footnote here. Look at it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's the kind of learning and achievement that we have to empower our kids with to emancipate their minds and liberate them to understand their own abilities to be great, to be academically uh, excellent, and to advocate for justice for themselves in their community. Now, using the 1619 Project and, you know, just putting, putting in this curriculum... Has be, has that been a heavy lift for you? Has it been a heavy lift for the teachers putting this all together? Well, I have a great team, okay? And so none of us do it alone, and, and I'm keenly aware of that. So my time recognition also belongs to the office of CLRI, the directors and the supervisors, uh, the parents who hold me, uh, who, who, who have my back, <laughs> who, watch, <laughs> who watch out for me and who look out and make sure that this work continues in our district. That, that recognition belongs to them. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it has been a heavy lift. Um, it's it's not easy. First of all, um, timing and stars aligning. Really, I believe in that because when we began writing the emancipation curriculum, we had white teachers who were really incensed by the George Floyd issue. And they came forward and said, we, we got to do something, Dr. Morrell. And on the steps of City, City Hall that summer, we had 700 or so teachers, teachers came out and protested and said, Black Lives Matter. And they got on their knees and they took a knee. I have pictures. And it was the most amazing experience of human connection that I had ever, like, I had ever had up until that point, right? I mean, it was like, they cared so much. And remember, our teachers are 80% white. So when they came back to the table, they wanted to write a curriculum that told the truth. That's all that it really, really, truly is when you think of the emancipation curriculum. It's just that part of the story that's untold. And it was the teachers, along with the office of CLRI, 
uh, on those curriculum committee about 40 teachers that began the work, began the research, going out, looking at what other districts were doing, pulling resources that were credible, getting in contact with the Library of Congress so we had credible resources, using uh, the work of the Southern Poverty Law Center, using the work of the New Jersey Amistad curriculum that had been vetted highly by the New Jersey Department of Education, looking at the work of the um, um, Zen Education Project, looking at the Black Lives Matter guiding principles and the work out of Seattle schools. And we brought all that to the table and we said, Let's put this together for our kids. Let's save lives. Let's put this together. And and, and and that's what we and that's what we do. Because this emancipation curriculum, it also dismantles the school to prison pipeline. Because when you think about the that I you know, I I'm actually, you know, there's more to me than Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, right? Um, I actually, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. civilization, the cradle of civilization is in Africa. And so, you know, this a lot of this began with me and I'm supposed to be great because those people were great and they fought and die for me to do things like vote and go to school with white children and go to school with all children and things and things of that nature and so this is really a I look at it more as a calling of saving lives than just a curriculum because now I can see myself I can connect to something positive in the work that I'm reading I'm opening up a book I'm five or six years old and I'm reading about my hair is beautiful you know, as a five or six year old, instead of being, you know, told something opposite that we see quite frequently in the media and on the news, the outlets. So it's a life change. It's a life saving mechanism, the emancipation curriculum. And we're going to continue to push equity for all with that curriculum. I'm going to take a time out. We've got a lot to talk about this morning <laughs> on Buffalo. What's next? Uh, Dr. <laughs> Fatima Morell from Buffalo Thank Public you. Schools with us. We'll take a break. Come Thank back with you. more here on WBFO. Support for WBFO, your NPR station, comes from our members and from Buffalo Commons Charter School. Now enrolling K and first grade students for the 2022-23 school year. Buffalo Commons Charter School is a place where kids can engage with a rigorous project-based curriculum, develop strong relationships with diverse classmates, and discover a sense of purpose. Details and information at buffalocommonscharter.org or 716-222-0416. Watch the WNED-PBS original production, Daredevils of Niagara Falls. I think part of the lure of Niagara was that it was understood to be a very dangerous place. A daredevil is somebody who goes out and does a daring thing. Maybe they make it, maybe they don't. Daredevils of Niagara Falls, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And we're back on Buffalo What's Next uh, with us, the Associate Superintendent of Culturally and Linguistically Responsive Initiatives for Buffalo Public Schools, Dr. Fatima Morrell, Jay Moran, along with Thomas O'Neill White. And, you know, we've touched uh, upon some of the some of the uh, principles, I guess, about the emancipation curriculum. But uh, I heard you mention also in a previous interview about a book. And I like to mention books on this program because... I always have this picture of, uh, of WBFO and NPR listeners hearing about books and then marching over to the library. And it, it, a book called The Spider Weaver. 
Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about what that book might teach a, a young student. And so, well, I love this book. Um, can't remember the author right now, but it it really uh, it talks about the uh, the greatness of 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 the Ghanaian culture, right? And so, when we think about Ghana. Um, and we think about West Africa, we know that many of our ancestors may have come from Ghana. And, um, and, and we know that they did. <laughs> and this particular piece really talks about the kente cloth, cloth fabric. So when you see the vibrant and rich colors that the uh, uh, kente cloth, the African ancestors wore uh, and still wear. Our, our present Ghanaian uh, brothers and sisters, and even right here in America, we mm-hmm. still wear uh, Ghanaian fabrics all, all, the all the time. Sometimes we don't know that those are royalty fabrics. And so in the Ghanaian culture, if you wore a certain fabric, particularly kente, and that particular uh, uh, arrangement of the fabric, the, 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 the materials, um, let's see, the colors and all of that represent certain um, um, royal families and lineage in the in the in the Ghanaian culture. So not everyone initially could just wear whatever any can kente. They can wear kente cloth, but they couldn't wear that that vibrant orange and yellow and green. It wasn't for everyone. It was for the royals and for traditional, you know, celebrations and things of that nature. Celebrations around uh uh, births and 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 um, marriages and even funerals and so um, it was really connecting our young people with uh, the African culture, but also connecting their minds to you know you come from greatness, you come from royalty, and connecting all children to the concept that all of us are together through this through a woven fabric of what we call life, and all of us are great. And white children can see. Oh, I know a lot about my culture, but black black kids they 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 actually have descendants that came from Africa. And look at this beautiful culture. So the spider weaver story is just a great uh, story about uh, African ancestry and uplift, and it's a it's an amazing story. Hey, uh, we had a uh, on last week, uh, Vicky Math, who was one of the present uh, presenters at the uh, mm-hmm. Teaching Black History mm-hmm. conference that UB held, and she talked about. Also, that culture out of Ghana as well. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe expand on it just a little bit more as well, because I mean, she was she got into that a mm-hmm. little bit, and you know, here I am. I'm you know, I was a kid educated in the in the '60s and '70s. Mm-hmm. You know, things I most certainly didn't know about, and I would think that I speak for a a large amount of people who mm-hmm. find that same thing. What, it, again, you're talking about the greatness mm-hmm. that is lost, has been lost to history. Oh, Expand yeah. on it a little bit. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the things that the Ghanaian and the Twi language people of, of Ghana, uh, of West Africa, also uh, gifted us with are proverbs and through the Adinkra symbols and teachings. Um, and so we get to learn a lot about the thinking of our ancestors, uh, historical thinking all the way in Africa through uh, what we call affirmations through the Adinkra symbols of West Africa. And so you will see, uh, for example, when you see um, the Swahili word, umoja, unity, right? And um, you will also, uh, so there's, there's hundreds of these symbols that basically teach 
uh, citizenship, democracy, love, affection, uh, family, community. Uh, you will see um, in these and a culture that goes historically back before what we saw in 1776 in in America. Correct. Oh, oh, eons back. Yes. Right. Oh, oh, absolutely. And and that's why I said it's such a gift to the present because we know that as early as the 13 and 1400s, the Ghanaian culture, okay, created a dinkra fabric with symbols to teach us, to teach us about, you know, as I stated, family and community and love. Uh, like akoma means love and it has a whole pre- pre- definition around it. You know, amari, strength. And why? And what does it mean to be strong? Um, these these words and these symbols um, also teach. You know, they 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 go back quite quite extensively before 1776 and before any invasion or conquering of African uh, uh, the the Ghanaian shores of West Africa. So so there's a lot to learn, um, and and we do have that as a gift. And I actually um, we in our My Brother's Caper program. Um, the Mel Academy program, we actually teach those symbols and those affirmations at every session that we come into so that they can know their their connection, their lineage to their West African history and culture, but also how to how to be a, a great young man. And, and those symbols can be found around the city. Um, yeah. I believe they are uh, on the Kensington and they are on the new tops on Jefferson Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks to Kat Massey, who unfortunately lost her life uh, in the in that Jefferson shooting. Dr. Morell, why do you think these topics being learned through the emancipation curriculum were, were previously overlooked? I think I heard someone say recently, I never liked Pearson to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so books are a business. Like, most anything else. And um, so what are we doing? We are appealing to those who have the power, the cultural capital and economic power to purchase our books. And so I'm not going to tell, I'm going to tell a story that, that fits into a narrative that allows us all comfort in our racism. Buffalo Public Schools Associate Superintendent Fatima Morell. You heard her talk about books and other resources. We close now with author Desiree Williams and her son, Cortland. She's the author of the children's book, Beautiful Brown Babies. So I've been an educator for over 10 years now, and specifically um, a school psychologist for almost 10 years. And so I've always had a passion for education, Um, specifically the education of black and brown children and really helping them reach their highest educational potential. And when I had my son in 2016, from the time that he was born, I was really intentional about finding resources, specifically books for him that would um, give him a a sense of self-pride and self-worth and self-love and his blackness. I really couldn't find anything like that that was developmentally appropriate and fun and colorful and engaging. And so I wrote the book that I was looking for. 
it was really just um, going to be a gift for him. Mm-hmm. And I started sharing it with friends and family, and they were so excited about it and really liked it. And it was actually um, my mother, who is Dr. Tanja Williams. She was the one who really encouraged me to self-publish it and to make it widely distributed. We talk a lot about representation, mm-hmm. representation in careers, in in movies, and TV, um, in books, even, mm-hmm. but not necessarily a lot has been paid to representation for children's books young mm-hmm. young readers um, those who are just starting to to read mm-hmm. uh, in order to to see themselves why does why does that matter why is that important positive representation in media in general is so important and I will scream that to the rooftops and for the rest of my life because I feel like it gives children an opportunity to see themselves in ways that they never thought possible, which could really be life-changing. And books specifically are so special because um, out of all the medias, I think they're the most accessible. Mm-hmm. So not everyone has you know, access to television or the internet or movies, but... I would dare to say everybody has access to books through libraries and schools and, you know, roaming a bookstore and those kinds of things. And so books are really special in that way. And they can really be a mirror for children to see themselves in ways they never thought possible. And also a window for children to look in on people that look different from them and see what their lives and communities are like, which is, I think, really powerful and life-changing as well. So it's not necessarily always for little black black or brown children. Mm-hmm. It really is universal for everyone to peek in and see how other people live or how other people exist. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that really builds empathy in children and builds, um, you know, that curiosity is what really makes a well-developed society in the future. Trauma over current events affects everyone, Mm -hmm. um, certainly in different ways, but for children specifically, it's it's difficult and it presents itself in in manifests in odd ways mm-hmm. because children often lack the the words the words for the emotions that they might feel um how do you talk to kids about racism about hate mm-hmm. um you know it really depends on their developmental stage and i would say for young children, research has shown that they really see race as through color. Mm -hmm. So up until age seven, children see themselves as brown or white, and that blackness is really that social construct that's a little bit abstract for them to understand. Um, But if you can talk to your child about you know, affirming their color as a brown person with, you know, curly hair or straight hair or, you know, whatever way that you look and to really say that's what's special about you and that's amazing and, you know, children who look different than you are also amazing because they have these things that make them different and unique and really exposing your children to 
different ways of living and being and looking and but also as I was saying affirming what they look like and who they are as well um, your book does does some of that as well as teach and touch a little bit on history mm-hmm. uh, you have some figures in your book who are wearing certain things so children are being exposed to this is that I'm assuming it's by design uh, so that parents can start to have conversations? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I, it was important for me to, you know, input those little bits of historical figures without um, overtly um, explaining them in that context because the book is really a book of affirmations to make children feel proud. But you're right to start those conversations of um, what does it mean what does red, black, and green mean? Or what, why does that child have an X on his head? Who, what does that X mean? And, you know, that helps parents kind of start those conversations. This is Buffalo What's Next. We're speaking with local author Desiree Williams about talking to kids about the positivity of their culture uh, and inclusivity and other more sensitive, more difficult topics. Um, how has your book been received by parents so there's been a really really great positive response and my mother and friends and family were right in that a lot of people were looking for books like this that I think you know since 2017 there's been kind of a boom of diversity in media in children's media specifically mm-hmm. um, but at the time that it came out there were a lot of parents who were looking for Um, those types of resources. So since Brilliant Brown Babies, I've self-published two additional books and a workbook um, that is affirming black and brown children as well. And I have a social media platform that's grown to almost 3,000 followers of just like a community of parents and educators who are looking for those social emotional um, resources that look at that development through the lens of diversity and inclusion. So there's been a lot of discussion uh, in school board meetings, in uh, online platforms, on Twitter, uh, about critical race theory, mm-hmm. about teaching African and unfiltered African-American history to students in school. Um, It's caused quite an uproar. Um, It seems to be a very divisive issue Mm -hmm. for a lot of people. There is concern that teaching critical race theory, teaching um, about black and brown children Mm -hmm. and teaching them their history, their unfiltered history, um, would cause white children to feel badly about themselves. Uh, what what would you say to the parents who are against teaching this because they feel that you're going to make their kids feel, mm-hmm. feel badly about themselves? So, black history is American history. It's everyone's history. And I think it's important to teach it in a way that is unfiltered in order to make sure that history doesn't repeat itself. Um, 
what I would say for parents who are concerned about their children feeling shameful of things that their ancestors may have done is to, you know, discuss those feelings of shame. Because if you're feeling shameful, then you don't identify with, you know, some of those bad things that your ancestors have done. And that helps you propel change for the future. Um, but I think it's so important that we discuss those things and we have those conversations. And for parents who maybe are not, you know, able or don't know how to have those conversations, we live in a digital age with so many resources um, that can allow parents to help facilitate those conversations with their children. But to erase um, critical race theory or black history is just not the answer and I think I would say to those parents think about the black child in that class or black children in classes for decades that have had to only see their history through the eyes of oppression through slavery and civil rights which are you know very important topics to talk about right but I think it's also important for black children and white children to know about all of the amazing contributions that black people have made to society globally. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the civilizations that were in Africa before slavery or to even know about things like, you know, that a black person created the traffic light or the elevator, <laughs> the right. potato chip. I think those things are important for all children to know and it really fosters a sense of community and takes away that otherness that perpetuates racism. Talk to me about the African-American experience in school and what what that looks like for uh, a black, a brown child, and then what that really looks like for a non-black or brown child. Mm -hmm. I think that would depend on the child, the school, the district, the, you know, the, the dynamics, the dynamics yeah. Yeah, but in general, um, our black children in schools, I think, historically have a distrust towards the school system because mm -hmm. they aren't seeing themselves in the curriculum. I mean, until recently, you know, we've seen some progression, but until recently, we really haven't seen ourselves in the curriculum. Um, you know, you sit through history class and you learn about all the wars and, um, you know, the presidents and, right. <laughs> you know, all of these different things. And then when we talk about African-Americans, we talk about slavery. The first and, time, I actually, <laughs> we had a professor on uh, a few weeks ago who said the first time when he was a child and he heard about black people was an encounter in a textbook that black people were slaves. Yes. Uh, he, there was yes. apparently nothing prior to that in exactly. his world or even in the textbook. Exactly. Yeah, that is that is 100% true. And I think even in world history, we don't talk a lot about what, what went on in Africa before colonization and slavery um, and, you know, the positive contributions that black people have had to society. So I think because of that, if you're not seeing yourself in the curriculum, you're not connecting to it mm -hmm. and you don't trust it. And it's, you know, it's really detrimental to a lot of our, our African-American children in the education system. Where am I? 
So I want to, at this point, introduce a special guest that we have here today. Um, like most working parents, childcare can sometimes be a challenge. Sometimes creative solutions are necessary. Yes. <laughs> and one of the creative solutions that we came up with today was uh, to have Desiree bring her son with her. Who has joined you here? This is my son, Cortland, and he is my co-creator and CEO of Brilliant Brown Babies. <laughs> Hi, Cortland. Hi. How are you today? Mm, good. Yeah? Can you tell me how old you are? Five. So you're going to be starting school? <laughs> yeah. What grade are you going into? Um, first grade. First grade. Have you read your mom's book? Can you tell me what you thought about it? Mm, good. Yeah? So when you go into first grade on the first day of school and, and your new classmate says, Hey, do you know a good book? Um, will you say? What will you say? Um, Baby Mom Babies. Yeah. I baby don't. Um, I think my um, kids um, don't say Brown Mom Babies. Um, from like, um, uh, I've been in kindergarten. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so they don't know, they don't want to talk about it. What would you say to your classmates? What Tell them why it's important to, to read. They already know. Oh, they already know, okay. <laughs> Indeed. But why should they read Brilliant Brown Babies? They don't have any Brilliant Brown Baby books. You were telling me earlier that you have a favorite thing that you study, that you look at, that you play with. What is that? Um, dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are fantastic. What makes dinosaurs so special for you? Um, cause they, um, um they fight and they, they, um, fight. Yeah. <laughs> they fight. <laughs> they eat things. Yeah. Yeah. I was saying that my, my favorite was the T-Rex, but you don't think that that should be my favorite one, right? T-Rex um, T Rex is kind of big, but Spinosaurus can beat T-Rex easily. Oh, it's because T-Rex has small arms, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I was wondering if you would be able to help me um, finish out my job here on the show today. Do you think you can maybe do that? Yeah. So uh, this is big time announcer stuff that you're you're going to uh, to have to do. You're ready? Yeah. Okay. Put on those headphones. You can put on the headphones if you'd like. Can so you hear? Well. Okay. There you go. You ready? Okay. Yeah. So repeat after me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To listening. To Buffalo. To Buffalo. What's next? What's next? That's Cortland and Desiree Williams. Buffalo What's Next is a weekday podcast, a radio program on WBFO and on demand at WBFO.org. We talk about race, about education, and about our shared humanity. Listen for us each weekday morning at 10 and each weekday evening at 9 on WBFO. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. 
Thank you for listening.